we're going to read the first chapter of Job. In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, let me add my welcome to Mark's. It's great to be starting this series uh, where we look into uh, this book of Job that has much for us to consider. Uh, two quick notes before I pray and we uh, look at this passage together. Uh, first is, uh, Ken is not with us um, tonight because he's been preaching at Nowra Baptist all day and um, after a big cycle race yesterday, so that was 
been a busy day. Um, we're continuing to support Narra Baptist who are without a pastor at the moment, so I'll be down there in a couple of weeks and Mark following that. Um, so be aware of that. Um, but secondly, tonight as uh, we look at this uh, topic, as Mark's already mentioned in the introduction, uh, we're moving into some deep waters and we're aware that that may trigger um, some responses and memories for people that are difficult. So let me encourage you again, as Mark has already, uh, that we care well and minister to one another after. It may well be that there'll be opportunity to pray and encourage one another. And if you need to talk to uh, Mark or I, you're welcome to do so after the service. But let me pray for us as we come to this first part of Job. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word to us. We acknowledge that all of it is God-breathed, that all of it is useful for teaching us and correcting us. And we pray tonight that, as always, you might uh, be at work in us, in our hearts and minds by your Spirit, that we might be encouraged and comforted where needed, that you might challenge us where needed to help us to think rightly about your sovereign control of this world as we consider the ups and downs in our own life as we think through the lens of Job. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in her book, 50 Facts That Should Change the World, Jessica Williams offers the following summary of the state of play on our planet over the last decade. One in five of the world's people go hungry every day. Up to a third of the world's population is affected by war. Landmimes associated with the war, those wars kill or maim at least one person every hour. There are 27 million slaves in the world today. 120,000 women and girls are trafficked into Western Europe alone each year. More than 150 countries use torture as part of their policing. And car accidents kill two people every minute worldwide. And I haven't even mentioned natural disasters like the earthquake that took place in Syria and Turkey in February of this year that killed over 40,000 people. And then, of course, there are volcanic eruptions and tsunamis and cyclones and flooding and bushfires. Now, the daily suffering across our world is so widespread and constant that it's actually numbing. We can't even take it in, let alone feel the pain and compassion that we should. People are completely distraught each day around our world as they often deal with the immense suffering of this life. And so how are we to think about all these things as Christians? In particular, how are we to think about our own suffering or the suffering of our friends or loved ones as we face the ups and downs of life? Well, as we begin this series in the book of Job tonight, uh, we're confronted with such questions and much more. The book of Job is certainly more than just answering the question of suffering, as we'll see over the coming weeks. There are themes of God's sovereignty, of our moral integrity, of blessing and curses, of honour and shame. But as we consider the opening two chapters of the book of Job tonight, 
we're going to hone in on a question. The big question that I want to consider is this. How are we to respond to suffering? How are we to respond to suffering? Now, given the scale of that question, uh, we're only just going to skate over the surface, really. There's much that might be said. But I hope that we might make a beginning in answering that question together tonight. So I've got three answers to that question. And the first answer is this. By worshipping the Lord, whether he gives or takes. By worshipping the Lord, whether he gives or takes. Notice again how Job is introduced. Uh, Job 1, verses 1 and 3. In the land of Uz, there lived a man named, whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. And so as we get this introduction, Job is introduced as a supreme example of godliness. And on top of that, he's somebody who's been greatly blessed by God with a large family and great wealth as well. And his righteousness was so renowned in the centuries that followed that he is named in Ezekiel 14 by the prophet Ezekiel as one of the greats of the Old Testament along with Noah and Daniel. And notice the description of him that pair of phrases in verse 1 that speak about him being blameless and upright. It's actually the second pair of phrases that explains that first one. What does it mean for him to be blameless and upright? Well, it meant that he feared God and shunned evil. The term blameless here is not claiming that he was sinless, but rather it's speaking about his devotion to God and his moral integrity. Job has a great character, but he's also been greatly blessed, as I mentioned, by God. He has this ideal family, seven sons, three daughters. The numbers seven, three, ten. These are numbers of completeness in the Bible. It's a picture of complete blessing from God. His material possessions are the same. The round numbers that we're given in thousands, tens of thousands. It's again a picture of God's complete blessing for this man. And more than that, we see in verses 4 and 5 that Job actually lives out uh, this integrity in the way he interacts with his family, with his children. Notice there we see Job's role as a mediator for his family following their periodic family feasts. He atones for the sins that his children might have committed without his knowledge. And it's wonderful, clearly, that his family is so close and get together. Perhaps that's the crowning greatness of Job's life at this point, these harmonious celebrations in his family. The whole picture is meant to say to us, this man lacks nothing. But this opening description, this idyllic scene on earth is preparing us for a glimpse into the heavenly council. Heavenly court in verses 6 to 12 which will lead to Job's devotion and his integrity being severely tested. So let's have a look at what unfolded there again. Verses 8 to 11. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? 
You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread out throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Well, God raises the example of Job in this meeting, and then Satan immediately questions his motives. The accusation is that Job simply fears God because he gets things. Material prosperity, Satan is arguing, is his motivation for obedience to God. And that word hedge there in verse 10 is referring to a protective barrier that God has protected this man and given him blessings, surrounded him with so many good things. And in Satan's mind, it's not because of who God is, but rather what he does for Job that God actually is worshipped by Job. And so he claims that surely he will curse you if there are no immediate rewards. His devotion and praise, they're superficial. In contrast to the curses which Job's sons may have spoken in their hearts in verse 5, Job's cursing of God, as predicted by Satan, is going to be this blatant public utterance in God's face. And here is the reason for the testing of Job's faith that follows. And the Lord allows the test to go ahead. And so from verse 13, we're back on earth with Job and this first test unfolds. The Lord had restricted, as we read, any impact on Job's own health in this first round. And so we get this fourfold impact on his possessions and his family. And the reports are poetic, aren't they? There's a repetitive pattern here. Each messenger comes. He's the only one that survived. He hasn't finished his statement. And another one rushes in and they give their statement. And on it goes. And the first three talk about the loss of every earthly possession that's already been described that Job has. And then the fourth and final report is about the tragic loss of his children. But of course, this whole test is not about actually what has been lost, but it's about Job's response. It's about Job's response to his suffering. And so the climax of chapter 1 is very clearly verses 20 to 22. How will Job react to this? Let's look again. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's an impressive response, right? Job's tearing of his garment, the shaving of his head, these are customary actions in the ancient Near East, expressions of grief and mourning. His actions which follow are perhaps more than just external expected actions because he falls to the ground as a servant would fall before a king. He bows down in worship before God after all that has just been announced to him. And then the words that he speaks shows again that this is true of his heart, reveals his heart. He has lost everything and he speaks about himself as if he's a newborn baby. He affirms that, well, we enter and we leave this world empty-handed. But more than that, he acknowledges that God is in sovereign control of all of this, that God can both give, but he can also take. 
And this reality doesn't lead to Job cursing God as Satan expected. Rather, he praises God. He praises God. Job blesses the name of the Lord, we're told. The use of the word Lord there is the personal name Yahweh. It's introduced for the first time in the book of Job. To make it very clear who Job is worshipping. And so the narrator summarizes how Yahweh's faith in Job has been vindicated. Verse 22, if we were unsure still after seeing these amazing actions and the response of his words, then we're told by the narrator that he did not sin. He has passed the test. Round one complete. Well, as we apply this first section, though, there are some big questions that come out of this, right? As we reflect upon the ups and downs of life that we all face... We've got to grasp that the Bible tells us that every earthly life is going to face trouble and sorrow. For example, in Psalm 90 verse 10 we read, The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. The psalmist here is saying human life is brief, it's overshadowed by frailty and suffering. And I think as we hear such words, perhaps we're inclined to think the Bible is being pessimistic, but surely it's being realistic. Our own experience tells us that. I'm sure there are many in this room that have faced far more suffering than I have at this point. You know what this life can dish up. Our own experience usually tells us the bible is correct on this i say usually because we do live in a very privileged society some of the things that we just saw in the video in bangladesh uh, we will never face i say usually also because some of us in the room are young enough to have not yet perhaps faced many difficulties but we all will face troubles of various kinds and yet we're all still called to worship the Lord like Job, whether in the highs or the lows of life. Suffering in this life is not an unexpected interruption. Our Western society wants to teach us <laughs> that falsehood today, that we can control everything. Our life will pan out perfectly. You can plan out every decade and what you'll do and where you'll visit and every holiday you'll do. No, rather... Suffering and difficulty is the normal, the normal, inescapable lot of everyone. And our ability to acknowledge that and then to have the right response toward God is very important. In 2002, uh, my wife Christine and I were expecting our first child. We'd just uh, commenced working at Chatswood Baptist Church. Uh, we were feeling settled. Uh, we'd just finished three years of study. And it was all we could do to hold back from telling our family and friends about our exciting news, to sort of wait to the 12-week mark, as we're all instructed to do when there's more certainty. Just on 12 weeks, we'd rung all our family and friends and told them the wonderful news. And then just on 13 weeks, Christine miscarried. And we were devastated. It was our first pregnancy and it was really hard to ring all those family and friends just a few days later and tell them the bad news. 
hit us like a ton of bricks at the time. But of course, our sorrow is not unique. There will be a number of people, perhaps many people in this room, that have faced that very thing themselves. In fact, 70,000 babies are lost to stillbirth or miscarriage in Australia every year. Almost one in four pregnancies end that way. But I tell you what was interesting following that moment was returning to church. I think so often in our culture today, we want to withdraw at those difficult moments. We want to create space. We don't feel like we're up for engaging with people and talking. I'd just been employed to be at this church. They expected me back soon. There was a brief gap between that. But those first couple of Sundays back at church was really hard to walk through the door. But you know, it was the absolute best thing for us. We needed to be with God's people. We needed to be reminded of the gospel. We wanted to sing praises to him. We needed the encouragement of our fellow believers. We needed to worship our God. Well, Job demonstrates this ability to worship God in a far greater way with the news that he'd received. But God calls each of us, whether we've had a good week or a bad week, whether we've faced tragedy or we feel like we're on a high, that we are his creatures and we need to come before our creator and offer him praise. We're to continue to worship. And that brings me to a second answer. A second answer on how to respond to suffering. And that is by trusting in God and receiving comfort. By trusting in God and receiving comfort. As we look at chapter 2 now, we observe another heavenly counsel in verses 1 to 6. And here we find the Lord, for a second time, pointing out Job to Satan. Saying, have you noticed that he's maintained his integrity despite the ruin that he has faced? Of course, Satan is not willing to admit defeat just yet. And so he asks for a second test to strike Job's flesh and bones or his health. Skin for skin, Satan says, and the Lord allows this test to go forward again. And of course, Satan here points out that he believes that Job will surely curse the Lord this time. If his own health is removed, then things will change. And he inflicts Job with painful sores. And the Hebrew word there, shame, uh, just refers to general dis skin disorders. We, we're not actually told what specific disease it is, whether it's leprosy or ulcers or anything else we might name. That's not really the important thing. The key in this second test, just as it was in the first, is Job's response. This is a test. Will he maintain his worship of the Lord, his moral integrity, or will he curse God? notice the challenge it's taken up a notch here verses 9 and 10 his wife said to him are you still maintaining your integrity curse God and die he replied you are talking like a foolish woman shall we accept good from God and not trouble in all this Job did not sin in what he said I think this is a greater test because it's a second round He's probably feeling now that his wife's proposition might seem inviting at this point. He's 
He's lost everything, it seems, and he's being pushed to respond here by her. She's really becoming an unwitting ally of Satan at this point by offering this challenge before him. But he doesn't waver, notice. He flatly refuses the suggestion. He rebukes her language as that of a fool. But it's the second response, the second phrase that he says to her that we really need to focus on here. Notice how he says that we must accept that if we trust God when he blesses us with good gifts, we should also trust him when he brings trouble. The trouble or evil, um, as it's translated in some of your Bibles, refers to calamities or disasters in this life. It's not speaking about moral evil, but it's about circumstances that overwhelm, overtake us. And Job's response to this trouble for a second time is to be blameless, according to the narrator who butts in. And at the end of verse 10, did you notice again? Job responds with ongoing trust. You notice too that he doesn't ask the why question, not yet. He's faced a lot of suffering already at this point. But he just accepts that ultimately all things are under God's control. So God has allowed, has brought these things into his life. But I think we naturally want to ask the why question. I think our culture rushes straight to that question. And I think it's helpful at the start of this series in Job to say a couple of foundational things as we think about that question uh, that the rest of the Bible can bring to bear. Elsewhere, Scripture does tell us that we live in a fallen world, which commenced with the entry of sin in Genesis chapter 3. The foundational reason given for all suffering in the Bible is original sin. Adam and Eve's choice place us in a world that is now marred by sin, corrupted by sin, and we face the effects of that in ourselves and in our planet all around us. But although the entry of sin through Adam and Eve is a basic reason as to why suffering occurs in our marred world, that doesn't mean that we can trace direct lines between an individual person's suffering and some sin that they may or may not have committed in their life. Jesus makes that very clear in the Gospels at a couple of points. In Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, as he speaks about the Tower of Siloam that collapsed and killed a number of people, and is questioned as to whether these people were sinners and that's why the tower happened to land on them, he says no. He also addresses it in John chapter 9. And we'll spend a little bit longer there for a moment there. Let's have a look at John 9, verses 1 to 3, commenting on a blind man who he and his disciples walked by. As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. I think in our day and age, it seems like a cruel question to even ask, right? But we need to grasp that this was the default assumption in Jewish society and had been since the time of Job. The one major point that we'll hear from Job's three friends over the coming weeks is that if Job is suffering, it must be because he sinned. And that's an ongoing grapple that we will think through. That if we suffer, it's our fault that God is punishing us. But the example of Job himself makes it very clear that that blanket assumption is wrong. 
And because there's something fallacious, there's a fallacy within that logic, for starters, isn't there? That if suffering is only due to sin, and we all sin every day because none of us love the Lord our God with all our heart or love our neighbor as ourselves, then we should all be suffering every moment of every day. There are clearly other principles at work in our world by which God acts towards people. But notice that in the midst of all of this, Job not only trusts God, but he's willing to receive comfort. He's willing to receive his friends. Job's friends start off so well at the end of chapter 2. They're, they're genuine in their friendship. They arrange to meet together. They go expressly to sympathize and comfort Job in verse 11. And they go through the usual Eastern mourning practices. They weep aloud. They tear their robes. They sprinkle dust on their heads in verse 12. And impressively, they sit with him for a full week and say nothing because they see how desperate his suffering is. They just stay and they're present. How do we think about how we might support someone? Let's apply that to ourselves for a moment. How can you be supported by somebody else? Or how might you support a friend or a family member who's going through suffering? Well, I think the first thing is to take a leaf out of the book of these friends. At this point, there's something good to learn from them. Just being present with someone suffering is often the most powerful thing we can do. The famous American journalist and radio broadcaster, Walter Winchell, said, a true friend is the one who walks in when the rest of the world has walked out. And at times of suffering or mourning, words often do fail us. We, we don't know what to say. But our presence itself can be a most precious gift for a person. And in terms of words, particularly if the uppermost thought in the person's mind is the why question, I think a good thing to say straight up is that I don't know. I don't know why this has happened. I can remember when I was at Castle Hill Baptist as a student pastor in 2011, the final year of Bible college. Uh, I was at that church for just 12 months. And while I was there, early in the year, a 15-year-old girl who was in the youth group tragically died. Her name was Caitlin Joy Twible. She attended William Clark College. She was on a school camping expedition when a large tree fell in a storm and crushed her in her tent. Well, you can imagine uh, the impact, the ripple effect that that incident had on the school community and on our church community. I was new. I didn't really know the family well, but as part of the team, I was there at the funeral service and it was nothing like I'd attended to that point in my life. The media were on the footpath, wanting to know how the family were going. It had been all over the newspapers. There was hardly a dry eye in the place. And it, it wasn't because uh, she was not a believer. She was a strong Christian. She came from a really strong Christian family. And she would wake up every morning uh, 
uh, to a little card that had been placed beside a bed by a parent saying, you are a gift from God. And, of course, it was naturally emotional. Uh, Young life had been cut short. There were lots of questions. Uh, No answers. Precious few. As Mark read to us earlier, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed to us and to our children uh, revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. What that verse is saying is that uh, some things are revealed to us clearly in God's word. But God alone knows why some things happen. They are the secret things that only he knows. We can know lots of things in this life in terms of what he's revealed to us in his word, but there are just some things that we will not get the answers to in this earthly life. But you know, there is a great hope for believers. We can face really hard things, but we have a wonderful saviour. And that's the third and final point that I want us to finish on tonight. The third answer to our question is this. We can respond to suffering by knowing that Jesus suffered and triumphed over it. By knowing that Jesus suffered and triumphed over it. We've got to be so aware uh, that God is not detached from our suffering, as if he's unloving or uncaring or unable to sympathize. That would be to misunderstand God completely. No, rather, he has entered into our suffering. He sent his son into our marred world that he might overturn the mess that we experience. Even before he came, centuries before he came, in the prophecies about the Lord Jesus and how he would be an act, we are told that he is a suffering servant. Look again at those famous words in Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. This suffering servant is one who came to slay suffering ultimately. But notice how he is described here. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. But surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Well, how did this suffering servant carry our sorrows and bear our punishment? Well, clearly that was on the cross as he bore our sin, as he overcame suffering. And that happened after the Garden of Gethsemane, that harrowing period where he prayed, Father, pleading, may this cup be taken away from me. But because it was God's will that he might overturn a suffering world, Jesus went to the cross. And as he hung dying, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's at that moment that Jesus experiences more suffering, suffering that exceeded all that would ever be born in this world. But at the very same moment, put a deadline, drew a line under the suffering of this world in defeating the devil and sin and death. And as the conqueror of these things, he then ascended to the right hand of the Father and now intercedes as our great high priest, the one who we can approach in all the difficulties that we face while we await for that great day when he will return and put an end to all the pain of this world. And so Hebrews 4 verse 16 is that wonderful picture of the freedom, the joy we have in coming before him in prayer. 
Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Have you taken home, hold of that incredible gift that we've been given in prayer? It's the most powerful thing on this earth. We can receive the peace that passes all understanding, Philippians 4, 7, if we will give ourselves to our God who is over all things. As we pray for ourselves, as we pray for loved ones and friends who are facing difficult moments, pray. Take hold of that wonderful gift that we've been given while we await the return of Jesus. And an end is coming. He will return. Just as he promised that he would lay down his life, he has promised to come back. And as a Christian, if you are a believer here tonight, you look forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a place that's free of suffering because it's not marred by sin any longer. In Revelation 7, we're promised that we'll have freedom from hunger and thirst and tears. And famously, of course, in Revelation 21, verse 4, we have that verse where every tear will be wiped away from our eyes because there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And we're called as God's people to live in the light of that eternity, to have that perspective as we face all the difficulties that we will in this earthly life. And that perspective is so crucial because it's going to shape how we think about what we go through. We're told a number of things as we think about the whole New Testament's witness to this in terms of how we might uh, put together what we see and how we should think about it in the light of eternity. For example, in 1 Peter 4, we're reminded that we shouldn't be surprised by suffering in this life as we await the glory to come because that is the pattern of Jesus. Romans 8 Philippians 1, Philippians 3, it's the same over and over. Suffering now, glory to come. Just as it was for Christ, so for his followers. We know what is ahead for us. And so we continue to persevere, knowing what is yet to come. Secondly, we need to think that any suffering we do face is a badge of discipleship. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.12 that anyone who would follow Jesus will suffer and that it will deepen our trust in him, our knowledge of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, writes in his opening chapter that the trials that we face will only grow our perseverance and our maturity as a believer. And finally, we have to believe too from the witness of Scripture that God can work good even out of the hardest moments, that he constantly does that in people's lives all around the world. And if we can't believe that for our own life, we need only to look at the cross. That in that darkest of days, when his son was being nailed to the cross by sinful human beings who could not see in front of them the only hope they had, God was at work. This wasn't a cruel death to his innocent and perfect son. No, this was him laying down his life so that many millions of people might be drawn into his kingdom that they might one day experience an end to this suffering, the joy of being in Christ's presence and knowing the end of sin and therefore death and mourning and pain. Humanity's suffering has a use-by date and it comes through the Lord Jesus and he will return and bring those who are in him to be in paradise. Let me pray for us.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is wonderful hope in the gospel. Though many of us will have and will yet face many difficulties in this life, yet we know that if we are in Christ, we have a great hope that is to come. We have your help in the present. We have the example of our Lord and all that he suffered and achieved so that we might have his help. Lord, we ask that as we reflect on these deep things that you might help us to grasp all that you have provided for us, to be reminded again of your sovereign power and your great love for us in the gift of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You'll have and will endure suffering, but we 